You know, Henry Morris in his book of beginnings says this. When we get to chapter four of Genesis, you ready for this? You might want to jot this down. When we get to chapter four in Genesis, here's what we know. And remember, many people believe that this was being written and given to the Israelites who were coming out of Egypt. So think about it. You've been in bondage to sin and to that kingdom or the the kingdom of Egypt for all those years. And finally, the Passover happens, the sprinkling of the blood. And, you know, you, you get going and you're like, Lord, thanks so much. You've liberated us from Egypt, but you turn around. Lord, why are those Egyptians in their chariots and horses chasing us and about ready to kill us? And I'm going towards the Red Sea and I'm looking and there's a sea. And then I turn around and there's people chasing us ready to kill us, Lord. And we're toast. All this time. How could it be, Lord? We're toast. And you know the story. The Lord opens the Red Sea and off they go and then closes it. You know that story. And then you get in the wilderness and a trip that should take a couple weeks or month or two months, whatever, a couple months because of our unfaithfulness, took us 40 years. Lord, what's going on? And they're asking those questions. And Henry Morris says then, when we get to chapter 4, here's what we know as we're reading it, and here's what the people know in the middle of the wilderness, that God created everything. God is the creator. That's one. And that man, woman, humans are the designated stewards of what God has created. But something cataclysmic happened. And Xander taught on it last week. It's so devastating. Sometimes in Sunday school, I always say this. We sort of color it as little cute little pictures, you know, the little animal skin and the apple. By the way, the Bible doesn't say apple. And it's flowery and cute, but really it's not. It's cataclysmic. It's devastating what happened in chapter 3. Because not only were we intended to be the designated steward and have dominion, But now we find out, and so did the people in the middle of the wilderness, that man and women, humans, are the rebel sinners that brought sin into the world. And that sin and death reign on the earth. Sin and death reign on the earth. And boy, are you going to see it today. And that God is the judge... He's the judge. God's going to judge. But he's also this. It's amazing, isn't it? When you get into the middle of chapter 3, Xander taught on it. There's the, you, ever, you ever been, well, we were this, this, this week. I mean, you're like up above the Alpine and then it's tundra and there's no trees and you're just sort of looking around at rocks. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of a rock, boom, a little sprout springs up and you look down and you... And it's like, whoa, it's so beautiful and wonderful in the middle of the desert. And it's like hope springs up. And we see that in chapter 3. We see the prophecy 
that the serpent would bruise the head of the promised one, but the promised one would crush the enemy. And that's back there in chapter 3 of all of this. And so hope springs up. And so you know that, and they know this, that God is the creator. Man was the designated steward or one to have dominion. But he's the rebel. We are the rebel sinners. Sin and death reign on the earth. God is the judge and redeemer. It's amazing. And when you see what sin can do, it always leads to death. Sin isn't cute. It's not fun. Well, it could be fun for a time, but it always leads to death and destruction. And Cade reminded me of this last night. He's right. I probably refer to this chapter as much as anything in the Old Testament because here's why. By the third page of the Bible, you know, they knew how screwed up we are. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I first read the Bible, I thought it was about a bunch of saints with halos on and perfect lives and everybody was smiling and everything was perfect and wonderful and just lovely. But here's what is amazing about the Bible. The Bible tells the truth about its heroes. We're to live in the light, to agree quickly with our adversary, Jesus tells us, to live a life of repentance and transparency and not hiding. And you see it all throughout the book of Genesis. Here we go. In the first verse of chapter 4, the Holy Spirit, through Moses, through Moses, tells us this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. Stop. We're not going to get very far before we stop. By the end of this chapter, we're going to see polygamy. But polygamy was never God's design. All you have to do is just go back and read one and two and three. And the Bible tells us that we're to leave our father and our mother. And if the Lord calls us to the relationship of marriage, we're to leave that relationship, father and mother, and to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ if God calls you to be married with one woman married to one man. And that's the first institution that God ordains here. And by the way, look what's the first miracle in the New Testament. Jesus does a miracle at a wedding. And so Adam knew Eve, and what a wonderful way to picture marriage. People, start knowing this. You're made up of body, soul, and spirit. Body, 
That's easy. But many people in this culture think romance is about bodies colliding against one another, if you know what I mean. And that's certainly part of it for a married couple. Yes, that's beautiful and wonderful. But we're also called to be spiritually one, yoked together spiritually, and to share spiritually, and to love spiritually, and to commune with God, and to be a light unto the world with our marriage. But also soul, our mind, our will, emotions. To love one another in that way, with friendship and personality and doing things together. And so you're coming together and cleaving to one another and two shall become one. It's not just the colliding of bodies. That's part of it. It's a good part of it. But it's the whole thing. And it's beautiful how this is put. Not in some crude, awful, terrible manner. All you have to do is go outside of these walls and listen to how people talk about marriage, about sex. And there's some crude things that are said about it. And yet, look look how, how the Lord talks about it. They know one another. There's an intimacy here in all those ways. It's beautiful. It's a picture of the gospel to the world. It's the great mysterion, Paul said. It's mysterious in some ways. Two become one. You're cleaving to one another. And you're becoming one in all ways. And so when the Bible describes the sexual relationship that Adam and Eve had, he says they knew one another. And, you know, you can talk about it in the realm of sex, of course. But listen, do you know what Paul says? And I think it's 1 Corinthians 7. I think it's verse 3. But if it's not, give me a break. I don't have my notes. I think that's it. You know, husbands, you're to render the affection that's due her. And before you get too excited, wives, hey, you're to render the affection that's due him. And that affection is in all those ways. You listen to one another. You pay attention to one another. You play together. I mean, in in terms of leisure, you, you do things together. You... You, you value what she values. He va- uh, she values what you value. And you participate together. And you know one another. And you, you know likes and dislikes. And, uh, you know, me, I come from a sports background. I can tell you who played for the New England Patriots in 1973. You know what I mean? And I didn't even like the New England Patriots. But I used to get all the statistics and read through them and know them and become an expert in those statistics. And the Bible says in the good way, not in, an, in, a, in a weird way, but you're to become an expert in your wife. And the wife is to be an expert in your husband, in the good way, in the healthy way. You're to know one another. You're to know one another sexually. You're to know one another spiritually and to know one another soulishly and personality and fun and good times and memories and hard times and all those things. Get it? Man, is it beautiful the way 
God speaks of marriage. And you go outside here and it's denigrated in all ways. And yet, when I read just verse 1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. He's talking, of course he's talking about the sexual act here, but he's also talking about all other things that we've just discussed. It's beautiful. He knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore this guy named Cain. Cain. She bore Cain. Apparently, uh, he was the firstborn of Adam and Eve. Although chapter 5 tells us that Adam and Eve had more kids than the three we're going to talk about today. You know that, right? So Adam and Eve uh, have Cain. What's fascinating about Cain's name, it's a pun. He's using a pun here, a literary device, the writer of Moses, because his name, Cain, in the Hebrew, is sounds like a word for gotten or acquired or possessed. In other words, she's saying here, she bore again this, or excuse me, she bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. What's that all about? Listen, his name means acquired, and she's saying, I have acquired a man from the Lord. What's she talking about? You know what she's talking about? I think, pay attention here now. This is amazing. She's talking about Genesis 3.15. She thinks Cain's the coming Messiah. Think about that. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And she understood prophecy, and she's saying here, I think, thank you, Lord. Amazing. You've used me, Lord, to bring about the prophecy. I've acquired a man or the man, the one you were speaking of, the one that you were talking about, the one that you told us about in all of the misery of the fall, in the hope that springs eternal, the prophecy of Genesis 3, and now through this beautiful union between my husband and I, Eve said to herself, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Think about that expectation. And then she bore again, and this time, his brother, or bore again this time, his brother, Abel, Abel. And Abel means breath or vapor. And we know that Abel's life, as we're going to see here in a minute, he had a premature, according to human terms, death. His life was like a vapor. By the way, I got news for you and me. Our life is like a vapor, it tells us in the book of James. You're here for only a short time. And I know, like taxes, something else. Unless the Lord comes first, we're all going to die physically. And I love when we learn about Jesus as judge. 
I love that. And you know I come from the sports world, and you know, you know I love judging. And yet, see, in a good way, listen to this. When I learn about Jesus as judge, I recognize in a humble way that what we do, what I do, what you do, what we do here actually matters. It has eternal impact or it could have internal impact in, for God's kingdom or it could have an impact in the other direction. You understand that. Our life is but a vapor, and that's what Abel was named vapor. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So what's this all about? Listen, Cain's a rancher. (laughs) Cain's a rancher. Abel, or excuse me, Excuse me, Abel's a rancher. Cain's a farmer, works with the ground, which is really fascinating because God in the last chapter, you were here for Xander teaching and you've read the Bible, God put a curse on the ground. But he is a keeper of sheep, Abel is. Cain is a tiller of the ground. Abel apparently is the younger brother. Cain is the older brother. And this is a key phrase right here in chapter 3. This is a key phrase. Theologians debate about this like crazy. And in the process of time, in the Hebrew, it's maybe not exactly that, but it's a hard thing to capture. Many theologians believe, and in the process of time, means that these two guys and their brothers and sisters and their family grew up and somehow, some way, and... Theologians don't exactly know how. The people of the time knew that it was good and right to sacrifice to the Lord. And that in the process of time means that Cain and Abel were doing what they always had done, what they always had been taught as kids from mom and dad. Now, where would mom and dad get this? This is fascinating You know, they're naked and unashamed, and then they fall, and all of a sudden they become naked and ashamed. And what does the Lord do, remember? He covers them with animal skin. You ever thought about that? That meant a death had to occur, or at least two deaths of two animals. And that to be covered again and unashamed from the thing that you did, that they did, required a death. and blood, and all the shrieking, and the smells, and the heartache. Who here wants to put their pet to death? Not many. And the heartache, and they started to understand that to be covered again required a death. And so mom and dad... and probably started to teach that this to their kids. And many theologians believe, and in the process of time, means that Cain and Abel regularly sacrificed 
And that they were now bringing their sacrifice to wherever they bring their sacrifice. Some believe it's right up to the gate of the garden. You can do your own studies on that. I don't know where. And they sacrifice unto the Lord. And that they knew somehow that the sacrifice required a death. Everybody with me? But you go on and it says in the process of a time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now I'm going to give you two different theories here. Because everybody wants to know, everybody wants to know, why in the world did the Lord reject Cain's offering, sacrifice, and he loved Abel's sacrifice, or sacrifice? Uh, I'm tired. What? Keep going. So Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. And the many of you are scratching your head and you, you're like, what is happening here? Well, here's one theory. Many people in the Christian church, many theologians say, oh, Abel, or excuse me, yeah, Abel's sacrifice was better because it was bloody. It was blood sacrifice. It was an animal. And that's in line with the law of Moses that's coming. It's not happened yet. We're pre-law right now. Not pre-law like in college, but you know what I'm saying. We're pre-law right now. But somehow, some way, God was teaching them and that the bloody sacrifice was a much better sacrifice because it was more in line with God's heart as evidenced by the law. And so surely that's why God liked Cain's sacrifice and didn't, or excuse me, liked Abel's sacrifice and didn't like Cain. But here's the problem for me. I love Leviticus. I mean, I love Leviticus. I love that book. When you start to read it and understand it, it's life-changing. It's transformative. And then the book of Leviticus and other places, do you know what sacrifices were allowed? Things that were brought up from the ground. So God's heart is that you can bring a sacrifice from the ground, but you can also bring a sacrifice of an animal, and in different ways and in different purposes, they're accepted. So me personally, I don't believe God liked Cain, or excuse me, Abel's sacrifice because it was a blood sacrifice. And the reason I'm going to tell you that is because, or the reason I believe that is because all I have to do is turn to the New Testament And God tells us why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. And here, you all know it. Listen to this in chapter 4. By faith, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 4 of Hebrews. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. The Bible tells us that Abel offered his sacrifice 
in faith and Cain didn't. And that's the problem. Because the Bible tells us, it goes on to tell us here, listen, listen, you want to hear this? Man, when I hear this, my ears perk up. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Man, when I read that, I just go, ooh, ooh. What am I doing in my life? Is it through faith and trust? Or am I doing it in my own strength because I want people to like me or to build some sort of church that's big and you know popular on Instagram and people know it and I can write books and have CDs and make a ton of money? Or am I doing things by faith? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. The Lord wants you to live a life of faith. Who knows that? Raise your hand. The Lord wants to live a life of faith. What is faith? It's belief and trust. And remember, that's all bundled up in rest. What is rest? It's believing what God says and then trusting it and going like this. Okay, Lord, I've done my best. I know you're going to work it out. And rest is relying on the life of another. We see that right there in the first couple chapters because we're wrecked and God covers us and we start to learn that we need a substitutionary sacrifice. And we know it's Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ comes to live in us and through us so that we can love a dying and hurting world, right? So when you come here, I think what the Lord's saying, when you come here, The problem with Cain's sacrifice, I've got the answer for the ages. Write it down. The problem with Cain's sacrifice, ready? For this unbelievably astute insight. The problem with Cain's sacrifice is Cain. It's not the plant, it's not the animal. It's what's going on in Cain's heart. And you see it all throughout this chapter. Sin was knocking at his door. And in the process of time, they were bringing their sacrifices. And one of the sacrifices was given by faith. Lord, you've given me this job. You've given me this ranch or whatever he gave with the unbelievable whatever i can minute you know worship you through my work as a rancher and out of that abundance the first thing by the way it said he gave the first of the flock and the fat portion we always give out of our first fruits not our dregs that we have left behind when we give out of the first roman says when the When you bless the Lord, the whole lump then becomes holy. And boy, do I feel like I'm a lumpy dude sometimes. So it's a principle. The Lord wants you to be, Paul says, a hilarious, hilarious giver. You give out of your first roots. You made a million bucks. Whoa, Lord, I'm going to walk it to the offering basket, or I'm going to give to this mission or that thing. Because I'm giving out of my first fruits. And Lord, it just pleases me so much because I know you're the one who did this, not me. 
So I'm going to come with an offering, not only of my life, but the things you've blessed me with, and I'm going to bless others with it. Lord, use it to bless others and to spread your word and to spread your gospel. And it just pleases me to do that because I know you did it, not me. Or you can say this, hmm, it's offering time again. How many percents do I have to give again, Lord? Is it gross or net? Come on, you've asked that question. And you know, I know you, I made that much money this week, but man, I really worked hard for that. And Okay, I'll put it in there, but I ain't too happy about it. And that's sort of what's going on here. And some people in the first camp believe what happened here is that Cain knew that he was to give all the time a sacrifice of the animal. If you're in the first camp of what we talked about, about why the sacrifices were accepted, their reasoning is then all of a sudden he showed up not with an animal sacrifice, but a plant sacrifice, and the Lord was like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know what it is to worship me. Why are you doing this? I think, personally, because uh, uh, Hebrews 11, chapter 4 tells us, it didn't matter what the sacrifice was. It's whether or not you trusted and believed and gave in faith. And look, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Why? Why? Folks, write this principle down. The Lord always looks at the heart. There's this old woman who has less than a penny. And there's these religious people with robes and trumpets and fanfare who are putting stuff into the temple treasury. And this little old woman with nothing, this cost her everything, puts it into that treasury. And the Lord says, take note of that lady because it cost her. And she really is in a free will way, loving me, and I love her. Ooh. So you go back to the text, and the Lord didn't respect Cain in his offering, and the reason was is because Cain's heart wasn't right. Do you get it? It wasn't because of the sacrifice, because it wasn't given in faith. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell, and there you, you figure it out in the split second. What was wrong with Cain? Because, listen, folks, folks, come on, time out, time out. If the Lord said to you, and you could hear it audibly, hey, listen, I'm not real happy with your sacrifice. Let's talk about it. Let's just imagine if the Lord said that to you. Most of you in here would say, oh, Oh, no. What did I do, Lord? I'm so sorry. You're right. The things you're pointing out, I believe you're right. 
Most of us would do that. But some of us would say, how dare you say that to me? Because the language here, folks, is not that he was just angry. The language here is that he was white hot with anger. He was in a rage about what God did or did not do with respect to his sacrifice. Can you imagine the audacity of someone to be angry in that way for the Lord, the creator of the world? Right? So he gets angry, and it says white hot in anger in the Hebrew. I mean, this is really angry. And then his countenance has fallen. I mean, he was wearing it on his face, and he was acting terrible and sulking around and being angry. And look what the Lord does. Guys, gals, write mercy in your Bible or on your notes. Just write mercy. You know, everybody says, this is such silliness. The God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New Testament. Oh, my goodness. If you were God, if I was God, and this dude is saying this to me right here, bang, I'm taking him out. God says, listen, he says it in his New Testament. I don't want anybody to perish. He says it in Peter, and he also says it in Timothy My heart is that all would come to repentance and have salvation. Even the ones who defy me openly and are angry and mad at me, I can take it. And look what the Lord does. He comes right to him. He comes right to him in a a merciful way. Watch. Mercy means withholding what you deserve. I would do this if I was him. By the way, rabbit trail, the the question is not, Why do bad things happen to good people? The question of the Bible is why does anything good happen to bad people? Listen to that again. I've stolen it, so it's not mine. The question of the Bible is not why do bad things happen to good people. That's the sort of thing Cain asks. The question is, why does anything good happen to all of us who are bad, who are sinful? It's because of God's mercy, you see. And here he's exhibiting it right here in chapter 4, in the story of Cain and Abel. I don't know about you, but humanly, when I read this story, I get mad. How dare you, Cain, talk to God like that? God says, wait a minute, Tim. I have a heart for Cain's. So I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say, hey, Cain, why are you angry? Hey, folks, folks, why do you think God asked Cain why he was angry? Do you think God knew why Cain was angry? Of course he did. Why is God asking Cain, why are you angry? It's the same reason he asks Adam and Eve, what did you guys do? You know, the Lord knew what they did. What is he asking them to do? Confess it. Repent. Get it out in the open. It's, listen, it is so devastating and awful to your spiritual and emotional life to hide things. 
And to act like you're hiding things from the Lord because he already knows. He wants you to live in the light. It's healing to repent. It's healing to confess. It's healing to get it out in the open. Do you see that? And here he says, why are you angry? The Lord knows why he's angry. And why has your countenance fallen? The Lord knows why his countenance has fallen. It's because he's prideful. And he wants to measure up. And he doesn't want other people to know what he's like. Sound familiar? And I would say to you and to me, if you're hiding something, I would say get it out in the open. Find a trusted brother or sister. Do it with the person of the same sex, by the way. And if you're married, don't go outside with somebody of the opposite sex and you get counsel and you confess it and you seek help and you confess it before the Lord. And if you do well, look, the Lord says, will you not be accepted? Oh, I just want you to get it out in the open. It's going to help you and it's going to help your walk, he says. And if you don't do well, listen to this, sin lies at the door. Sin lies at the door. The Lord says the enemy of our souls is like a crouching lion ready to just pounce on you. And the Bible tells us, like, let all bitterness and all manner of wrath, get rid of it. Don't let it stew and fester in there. And here he's telling him this because if you don't, sin is going to pounce on you and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Hey, look at this. Turn with me to Romans 6. Paul knew this in the New Testament, right? Paul knew all about this in the New Testament. Paul knew all about this. The same thing. Nothing's new under the sun. Somebody should write that down. Oh, wait a minute. Somebody did write that down. There's nothing new under the sun. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, listen, I know God's graceful and God's merciful. And so I'll just sin like you know what, and I'll ask the Lord for forgiveness. And Paul says, certainly not. In the Hebrew there, he's saying that's sheer stupidity. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? That's a promise. Raise your hand if you like promises. Oh, I do too. And it says here, I mean, we died to sin when we surrendered our life to Christ. And many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, but were raised to new life. And that's what baptism is all about, a picture of what's happened spiritually. And you go down here into verse 10, read with me. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now watch, here it comes. God said, sin is at the door, Cain. If you do good, you're going to be accepted. What was he talking about? He's not saying do good to get God's approval. What he's saying is, as a person who believes and is filled up, here's what we are to do every day. Paul writes it down in Romans chapter 6. When your feet hit the floor... Don't think about Ohio State football or hiking in the Rocky Mountains. Do this. No kidding. Do this every single day. Reckon yourselves dead 
to sin. Consider yourself to be dead indeed to sin. What? But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we escape sin? We reckon ourselves dead. Paul says it, not me. You remember, you preach to yourself. I'm a born again, alive by the Spirit Christian. And sin has no place. That I'm dead to sin. What? Look, here comes the second one. And don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should bay it in his lust. And all you have to do is think about pornography. Now, I don't want you to think about pornography. But to think about the enticements. Well, you know, I mean, come on. It's Sports Illustrated. It's the swimsuit issue. I'm a guy. That's the thing that we do. Come on, let's take a look at the new bathing suits. And what are you doing? You're, you're inviting it in. And I'm just using one example. But don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you shouldn't obey it in its lusts. Because you're so filled up with the light and life of Christ, and if you're married, you're so honoring your wife, you don't want to look at anything else, any, any other pictures or anything like that, or objectify any other images. You just want to be true to the Lord because it's the institution of marriage. I'm picking on one thing here today because it's easy, but it's in a myriad of things. And then listen to this, 13. And don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And what I'm trying to tell you is this principle that's right here in Genesis 4, Paul in the New Testament talks all about it. In other words, there is nothing new under the sun. The enemy of your souls wants to destroy you and your witness, and he'll do anything to do it. You have a target on your back if you're a born-again Christian. You have a target on your back. If you're not a born-again Christian, why would he mess with you? He can lead you into terrible things and sin and destruction, and will do that, and lead you down the path. But man, Christians, he knows he can't win the battle or the war, but maybe he can just win the battle and get you off into some stuff. And Paul gives you the prescription for when sin's at your door. And one of the flags, look, just go back to Genesis 4. One of the flags is, is when Lord tells you something or shows you something in his word, do you get angry about it? Do you get defensive about it? Do you like to take criticism? Yeah, who, who wins? That's how I feel, too. Whew. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field. This is crazy. You know why? This is premeditated murder, folks. This isn't like a crime of passion. You know in the law, right? Right, John Serpa? You know in the law. I mean, you know, if I'm shooting at somebody in the theater, boom, or wherever, if I'm shooting somebody, you know, and I see him back there and I shoot him, boom, I've premeditated murder. But say I was shooting at that wreath back there and somebody walked in front of the bullet, would it be murder? No, it wouldn't be murder. You had no intent to do it. And yet it's some sort of crime because you were acting recklessly in a room full of people. But what I'm telling you is here, the Bible is clear. Cain talked with Abel, his brother, This wasn't a crime of passion. He thought this through. 
He thought this through, folks. And I would submit to you, based on chapter 5, verse 3, And verse 4, that Seth was born to Adam and Eve 135 years after creation. And what I'm trying to tell you is, Cain and Abel are born soon after creation. They're little kids and then they become adults. This has probably happened as adults. And right here, like Cade says... On the fourth page or the third page of the Bible. Oh my goodness. Do you hardly believe it? It's a murder. And it's not just a murder. It's a murder of one you're supposed to love and protect. And it's all because you come to the crossroad where sin is crouching at your door and you choose sin over life. And it's happening every day, everywhere. These people, Cain and Abel, were real people, are real people, but they represent the two types of people in the world. Go the way of Cain, the Bible tells us in the New Testament. What's the way of Cain? Being orchestrated and puppeted by the devil. Or you could go the way of Abel. So... Cain talked with his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And killed him. I mean, murder, premeditated murder. And the Lord said to Cain, listen. I would have knocked him out right here. You, you, you just murdered your brother? And the Lord, look what he does. He goes right to them, or right to him. And he asks them the question again, where is Abel, your brother? He knows exactly where Abel, his brother is. He's dead. And God knows it. And God is just trying to pull it out of him, pull it out of him to turn his life. You understand? Even this God could forgive and we could move on. If you'll just admit, if you'll just repent... Okay, remember I said I lost my notes, so I'm using my phone where I have my uh, my phone for my notes. Martin Luther said this about repentance. So amazing, you got to think about this. To do so no more is the truest repentance. To do so no more is the truest repentance. See, a lot of people talk the talk. They're remorseful. They got caught. They see consequences coming down the road and they're like, oh, okay, I better act like I'm sorry. And they probably are sorry. But sorry isn't repentance. Repentance is agreeing with God that what you did was a sin against Him, not just Cain, or excuse me, not just Abel, but it was a sin against God. And that you're not just sorry because you got caught, but you are remorseful because you sinned. And you turn and move towards God. And the truest repentance is to do no more. You got it? It's a changed life. And 
That is what God's looking for here. Do you know it? The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, folks, this is shocking. Listen to what, if somebody's back there in the booth. Is somebody back there in the booth? I can't see him. Yeah, there he is. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this verse, if we can put it up. The cool cool impudence of Cain is an indication of the state of the heart which led up to his murdering brother. And it was also a part of the result of his having committed that terrible crime. He wouldn't have proceeded to the cruel deed of bloodshed if he had not first cast off the fear of God and been ready to defy his maker. Charles Spurgeon. See, God got him to the fork in the road. But you can see, this is amazing. This is, this is, this is terrible. Sin just keeps leading down a bad path and down a bad path. Here, there's death. Jesus said, if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. If you've hated somebody, you look at Cain and you go, what a terrible dude. But you just kept going on. and You even were uh, disrespectful to God. I don't know. Can you imagine? Am I my brother's keeper? That's what he said to God. Turn over to Proverbs 28, verse 13. See how you tie in Wednesday nights. You just tie them right in here. It's a plug. No, I'm kidding. But the Lord gives us this principle through Solomon in Proverbs uh, 28, if I can get there, and verse 13. I mean, Solomon figured it out. He who covers his sins will not prosper. And I don't know that that means wealth finances. It means prospering spiritually. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So the question becomes here, folks. You ready? Here, now it's coming to your, your living room. What are you hiding? What am I hiding? What is it that you're hiding? It's not healthy. I mean, you don't have to go and give TMI and tell, you know, all the gory and graphic. But is there somewhere where you can, if you've hurt somebody, right, did you go to that somebody and ask for forgiveness? Or are you hiding it? You're trying to smother it over. Are you holding a grudge against somebody? I want you to see something. God knew Cain murdered Abel, and God went to him and said, what did you do? Please, just admit it. Humble your heart and return to me. That's what he's saying. It's not too late. And I fear that even in the Christian church, we do this, and we just smear over things and just move on. Well, and he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And you know that. I mean, that, you know, the blood of unpunished deeds judges you, right? Well, how about this? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. By the way, if you're studying... 
Genesis chapter 4, Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12 are right on point here. Because Hebrews 11 is talking about faith, and that's what this is about, giving in faith, living in faith. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, and if you go to verse 24, how about this? How about you read in 22 with me? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all. Praise the Lord, he's the judge. To the spirits of just men made perfect. Now watch. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Wow. I don't think we get it sometimes. The efficacy, the power. We sing the song, but we just sing it because sometimes we like the harmony and the melody and the tune. But there's power in the blood. You see, you and I are wrecked without God. We're rebellious sinners. You're not basically good. You're basically bad. So am I. We're bad. And it's rebellion. And we see it here in the life of Cain. And if you say you've never acted like Cain, you're lying. I'm lying. And Abel's blood was spilled and testified, listen, of the judgment that was going to come to Cain. But Jesus' blood speaks of the acceptance you can have if you've been a Cain. Wiped clean. No more record. They've all been nailed to the cross. Wait a minute. And the Bible says, by that blood, listen, you're free. When you read the story of Cain, Cain thinks he's in charge and a tough guy and rough, but he's trapped. And that's the real struggle. And he doesn't know where to go. And he's trapped. And the Lord keeps telling him, just come back, just come back. And he won't because of pride and arrogance and sin. And if we just come to Jesus, all of that could be wiped away and we could be as free as free can be. There's liberty by the blood of Jesus. It's amazing. So now you're cursed from the earth, Cain, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. In other words, God strengthened the curse that already was via chapter 3 against Cain. He amplified the curse. Do you catch that? And you're going to be a vagabond and you shall be on the earth. What's a vagabond? Has nowhere to call home. Wouldn't that be just so disconcerting? And if you work with the homeless, which some of you folks do here, I mean, that's really disconcerting. Can you imagine not having any place to go to lay your head at night? But maybe on the cold, dark, stony sidewalk with nothing to eat, nobody to talk to. 
And that's what God made Cain. He was a vagabond. He lived in the wilderness. He just had to, to move about and uh, he shall be on the earth. And watch this. Listen. And watch the response. This is so typical of somebody who's in sin. This is it. All the red flags are going up. Bing, bing, bing. I'm asking you for repentance. I'm asking that you come to repentance. I'm giving you chance after chance after chance. You know what you would say when he said you're going to be a vagabond and you're going to be on the earth and you're going to have to work harder than you should? And you know what you would probably say if you were repentant? Oh, Lord, what have I done? I've sinned against you. He says this, my punishment is greater than I can bear. See, it's all about him. I have news for you. If you are in this life, it ain't about you. It's not about you. It's about us honoring the center of everything, and that's God himself by the Son through the Spirit. It's about us honoring him, not him honoring us. Lord, I got these ideas and plans, and I need you to bless them. And if you don't do it within the week, I'm going to be ticked, so you better do it. That's how we pray. Here, you would expect, oh my, I finally figured out. He says, it's all about me. That should be his song. Isn't there a song called, It's All About You? Is there? Anyway, in talking about Jesus, here it's all about me, Jesus, right? Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Oh boy, Lord, it's all about me and my life's going to be so messed up now because you've put me out as a vagabond. He still didn't commit or or, uh, repent. He still didn't become humble. He's choosing his own path here. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. You see. And he's talking religious here. You get it? Because the power of the Christian life is not living by some Susie Orman, Tony Robbins guidelines for life. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's the presence of God in your life that makes us a Christian. That's what it is. It's the presence. It's where you're healed and strengthened and loved. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship with God through Christ. And he speaks this religious stuff. Oh, he catches himself. I'll be hidden from your face. I'll be a fugitive and a vagabond. There he goes. And uh, on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Well, here's my commentary, not the Lord. So what? Look what you did. That's how I think right there when I read that. But he's now, it's all about him. Somebody's going to kill me, Lord. (laughs) Yeah, I know, but you've been judged and you've been given time and time again chances. And then here we see it again. So incredibly merciful and gracious. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. In other words, nobody's going to kill you. I'm going to protect you. Okay, where's the mic? Just drop and I leave. That's hard to believe sometimes. He protects the one 
who's, you know what, thumbing their nose at him in the most horrific ways. And when you figure that out, and when you start to think about, and you take it to the cross, and you go, gosh, Lord, what did you do? You start to live in awe. Here he protects Cain and says, anybody who kills him sevenfold, I'll put on them. And the Lord set a mark on Cain. What's the mark of Cain? I have no idea. But it was something. Was it a physical mark? I don't know. Was it a spiritual mark? Yes. But I don't know if it was physical or not. But there was something there that was protection, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod. By the way, that means wandering. He went out east of Eden. And then Cain knew his wife. I know, you're going to ask me. How did Cain have a wife? Well, the Bible says that there were many kids, and so he probably married his sister or his niece or something. You're saying gross. But you've got to remember, at the beginning of time, the genetic structure was different. And there was a limited number of people. And in one sense, we're all from the same place, Adam and Eve. And yet, God recognized as he went on and put in the law that incest was forbidden. And he does do that. But at the beginning, that's probably what happened. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Watch this. None of these things are inherently wrong. Watch it. But see, Cain's line, you're going to learn about Cain's line now. The line of man. And then next week, we're going to get into the line of God. The line of Seth. Cain went out dwelt in Eden, knew his wife, she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son. Are you kidding me? Wouldn't you want to name it something like God's place or because of God or something? But I had a son and I'm going to name it after a son. Now remember, what was his curse? You'll have nowhere to live. So he built a city. He was defying God in every turn. You tell me I won't have a place to live. I'll build it myself. I'll name it after my kid. Who are you to tell me what to do and where to go? You can do your judgment all you want, but I'll still defy you because I know better than you. And you say, wow, that's terrible. But see, we're in this era now where the whole culture does it. Oh, by the way, it's found its way into the church. We speak religious, but don't obey him. I'll just give you one example. Romantic relationships. Everybody wants to do Christianity until it comes to the time of romance. And then we all go off the rails. But see, the Lord's saying, I want you to obey me everywhere and not do it your own way. Cain knew his wife, bore Enoch, built a city, called the name of the city Enoch. Hey, I did this. This is my son. Uh, you told me I'd be a vagabond. Well, I'm going to build my own city. And then uh, to Enoch was born Irad. What a name. And Irad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methusael, and Methusael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. Here it is, polygamy. God said in the garden, I want one man and one woman to leave their permanent relationship of family. 
doesn't mean you don't honor your family, love your family, but you don't live the gospel out in your families. You live it out together as husband and wife to become one. That's what I want to happen. And here you go. The line of man says, oh, let's have two wives. And the name of one was Adah, which means pleasure or ornament. I mean, right? That's what the world thinks marriage is. You look good. You look good. Let's get together. And the other one, the name of the second was Zillah, but it means shade, but what it really means probably is she had glorious hair, shade. But that's up for debate. I just want you to know a couple things. Polygamy is not as often in the Bible as you think. As we go through the Bible now, you, you figure out the ways and the places where it's mentioned. And it's not as often as you would think. And I want to tell you, every place that it's mentioned, people get jammed up by it. Abraham had a complicated life because of it. The sons of Jacob began to hate each other. Sons of Jacob, brothers, because of it. And you could go on and on and on, and there's this thing in the Bible called progressive revelation. The Bible starts with a general principle, Genesis, one man, one woman, come together, two become one. And throughout the Bible, it develops the theology. And so we're just seeing here, you you know, because people are going to ask you, well, polygamy is allowed in the Old Testament. No, it wasn't. It's that man chose to go that way. And it always jammed people up. And Adabor, look, verse 20, Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. It was like he was an entrepreneur. Nothing wrong with entrepreneurship or building cities if you're doing it in the name of the Lord. But see, the, what, what the Bible is trying to tell you right here is they were expressing their independence from God. We can do it without you. And his Brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. Nothing wrong with music. It's God-given. Praise the Lord for music. But if you do it in a way that's not honoring to God, you see, it can be a problem, and it could be a big problem. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Namah means loveliness. They put a premium on independence from God, doing our own thing, taking things that God intended and perverting them or twisting them, and people who are lovely and good and rich and have great images are going to be uh, uh, lifted up high. But if you don't fall in that category, well, okay, too bad for you. That's what these cities were like. And then Lamech said to his wives, listen, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. This is called, by the way, by the theologians, the song of the sword. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. It's like he's putting up his arms like this. See my chest. I'm boasting here to my wives. I've killed a man for wounding me. Some people believe this is legitimate self-defense he's talking about, but think about it. You wounded me. I'm going to murder you. 
And violence is lifted up as being something that's good. I've killed a man. And if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech, which is funny, he's talking in the third person. It's so arrogant and cocky. Then Lamech, 77-fold. I'm so much better than Cain. I could take a man who wounds me and just drop him. And the, the society puts a premium on that. And he brags about it. And that's what we do, don't we? The strong survive. The pretty are honored. And if you're weak, you're thrown to the curb. But look at this. The Bible. God. And Adam knew his wife again. Here comes the replacement for Abel. The things that the enemy means for good, God can turn around or meant men for evil, God can turn around for good, can he? You can't stump the Lord. You just can't. You can't stump the Lord. And here, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, isn't this beautiful? Man, this gives us hope today. We sang about it this morning. I forget the song now, but we sang about it. I remember that. I'm sorry. Senior moment. (laughs) And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Watch this. (laughs) This is where I want to be. This is where you want to be as a mom, as a dad, as a grandma, as a granddad, as a friend, as a person in society. Don't you want to be this? There was no hope for the society. There was nobody. And God called a man. His name was Seth. And God blessed him with a son, Enosh. And he and his wife and the grandparents and the kids, they together started to call upon the Lord, the name of the Lord. They called upon the name of the Lord. By the way, I don't have time. i got to stop. But there's only six times in the Bible that that phrase is used, called upon the name of the Lord, and it always speaks of worship. These people worshiped in their homes. God called one man through Adam and Eve, just one man with a wife and kids, and they started to call upon the name of the Lord. They started to worship again. And the, and the implication here is that the appointed time, I don't know what the appointed time was, In our time, it's Sunday. But here, here's the point. Here's revival. Here's revival in chapter 4. They needed revival then. We need revival now. It will take people who quit denying and hiding and come out into the light and call upon the name of the Lord and say, I'm sinning and I need help. And my pride, I just want to get rid of it. But I need your help, Lord. And I want to come and I'm going to worship you at the appointed time. And it's always a good time to worship the Lord. But I'm going to do it. And I want to bring my family along. I want to bring my family. And maybe I haven't been doing it right. But Lord, help me now. I want to bring my family. And through one family, one family, there's revival. It's amazing. That's right here in chapter 4 of the Bible. Who wants revival? Seriously, raise your hand. Do you want revival? 
guess what? It starts at home. Not just home. It does start there where you live, but it starts at home. The church judgment is at the church first and then out to the world revival. So as we close, who, man, you can read through this and go, huh, okay, just some sort of link to get us to Seth. In my one-year Bible, before we even read it, I might just mark that off because I know it. But it has so much to speak to us. Don't hide it. Live a life of repentance. Trust the Lord. Have faith. The things that you do, whether it's give money in the box, whether it's work at your daily job, whether it's at your extracurricular activities, whether it's talking to a friend or talking to an enemy, listen, or talking to the person who's in the corner that never gets part of the, to be part of the conversation. What are you doing when you do these things? You're doing it in worship to the Lord. You're doing it by faith, not your own, not my own strength. I know, but I can't stand that person. Well, too bad. The Lord's asking us to do it. Well, he criticizes me. She criticizes me. She spoke behind my back. Too bad. The Lord knows exactly how you feel. And you said when you signed up, whatever you say, Lord, I'll do. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We want to live for revival until you come. Filled with your spirit, honoring you, glorifying you in whatever we do. Whether it's work in a kitchen or work at an office or volunteer somewhere. Wherever we go, Lord, it's all worship is unto you. Lord, help us with our pride. Help us to live in the light appropriately. Thank you for this line of Seth that gets us to Jesus. May he be honored and glorified in our lives today and all days. It's his name we pray. Amen.